Something that I've really valued over the last few years of hosting and producing this podcast has been the opportunity to connect with people that I didn't know before who do very, very similar work and have some similar thoughts, beliefs, philosophy around the work that we do. This conversation is with one of those people. Welcome to Vertical Playpen. I'm your host, Phil, and let's get into the conversation between myself and Miriam Hadness. So I don't really know necessarily where this might go, but I'm excited to have you on the podcast, Miriam. It's a uh, it's partly selfish. I always sometimes mention this in these that there's a selfishness to the podcasting that I just want to talk to people. So talk to people who have similar interests. So I just, for me, I'm very excited about where this will go. Thank you. Um, same here. And I think that's the best motivation you can have to invite someone on the show, because then at least you have some genuine interest in the content and you can ask them curious questions. Oh my goodness, Miriam, what a segue, maybe unintentional, maybe psychically that you've picked up on, you said curious questions, because what I'm going to do first of all, before we even get into those, in adventure education, there's this notion of challenge zones and challenge by choice. And so I'm going to give you now a choice of the next question. And we're going to use questions that are used from a deck of cards of a, a connection we have in common, and that is Jan Keck. Do you want a question from Curious? Do you want one from Brave? Or do you want one from Vulnerable? And then I'm going to riffle through and you get to say stop. And it's a mystery question. So mystery questions to start us off in our, in our conversation. So would you like Curious, Brave, or Vulnerable? I take a brave question. Okay. And so I'm going to riffle through these and you just tell me when to stop. Stop. Okay. The question is... What was the last big lie that you've told? So I made the promise to myself that I don't lie. I, um, I'm not a fan of lies. And it's a constant challenge to myself not to lie. And sometimes it feels so, so easy to, to hide behind a white lie. And then usually it fires back. Can I share a situation where I decided not to lie instead? The situation where I um, had to refuse someone's request and it was um, someone there to me. And I also have, um, I have an advisory board that I, my wisdom circle that I um, consult regularly for the big questions, um, helping me to try make sense. And I tried, I found all kinds of excuses for myself to, um, to accommodate the request. And my advisory board was very harsh and they asked me, okay, Miriam, it seems like you're confusing the business and your personal. And is this really the only way how you can meet this request? And I could have then turned to the person and just find a white lie, some excuse why it wouldn't work. And it was quite easy to find these excuses. And instead, I decided to go the hard route and scheduled a call, had a very honest conversation and explained how I was trying to find excuses to accommodate his request, but it wasn't rational and it wasn't, um, it didn't make sense. And that this was the outcome and invited him to let me know how to deal with that. 
And that was tough. I think this was really brave. It's this muscle to train that the more we are honest to ourselves and to others, the more we learn integrity and we teach our body that, yes, we will survive. Telling a friend that, oh, I pretended that I was busy, but in fact, I actually was upset and that's why I avoided you over the past weeks. That's one of the most difficult things I've ever said to a friend. And it brought so much more depth to our friendship. I think that it really leads us into this this notion of maybe even why we decided to do the work we're doing, because I think that some of that work that we may embark in when we facilitate workshops leads us into a path of wanting to have more honesty in conversation and wanting to have more time given for those conversations because we know that time is often an essential thing for us to be able to get the full value of what work we do. But let's go back in time a little bit. What was your first interaction with this notion of a facilitated program? And then maybe what does that, what does facilitation mean for you? The very first time that I was in a facilitated session was about 10 years ago and it was hosted by who became my very first podcast guest, Patrick Howden. Because before I was um, so in my previous life, almost, um, I was in higher education. So I was teaching um, students and we invited Patrick to host a leadership workshop And I thought, coming from university and education, I thought it's going to be a talk. And what he threw us into was small group conversations that became so vulnerable that I saw students crying and CEOs crying. And it was all about deep listening, appreciating, um, and holding space for each other. And this had such a huge effect on me that um, I continued to use this structure um, in the work that I would do um, afterwards. And still, I didn't know, I think I wasn't familiar with the word facilitation. I didn't know that. I um, Then in the next job that I did, um, I was in charge of a bottom-up strategy process, had um, the opportunity to work with a fantastic facilitator. And she introduced me to design thinking and world cafe. Amazing. Still didn't know the word facilitation, those kind of workshops. And it was only years later when I quit my formal day job, came to Amsterdam, redesigned my life. Uh, didn't know really what to do. Started to throw idea parties <laughs> that um, then I learned would go under the name of a mastermind. And then read Priya Parker's book, the art of gatherings. It was one of these moments where she describes the role of a facilitator. And I remember, I, I clearly have this picture in my mind, how I jumped off the couch and I took a sticky note and a Sharpie and wrote down, I am a facilitator and flip, put it on my door. <laughs> Finally, I had a label to put on my forehead. When you think back to that first experience, and you mentioned it was an emotional experience, what about it do you think was different than previous experiences that you had that for you were like, yes, this is the one. This is what I should do. It was leading by example. So the way 
Patrick introduced the exercise was by first exposing himself and his own vulnerability, his own story of success and failure. So what does leadership actually mean? Framing it as an exercise where we're invited to, in small groups of three, just listen to each other without commenting, without asking without needing to know something or feel with someone, but just holding the space and to listen. And back then there were, there were three rounds, three people, and everyone had to answer the question, who am I and why am I here? They had three minutes and then received one minute of positive feedback. And then it would be the next person to reply. And I remember we did this with a group of CEOs and CFOs who were um, foreigners in Vietnam. I think it was the first one that two minutes into the who am I, and the first minute is quite easy. They just talk about their CV and whatever. Minute number two is maybe goes a little bit deeper. And then usually there's a pause and then something comes. And in this last minute, he reflected that he was shortly um, to retire and he was scared of the moment because it made him realize that he doesn't know what to talk about with his wife, that they haven't spent any significant time together because he was working so much. And this moment of vulnerability where everyone was just there to hold the silence and this moment of emotions together. And we're talking about kind of successful, yeah, middle-aged white man. And that was strong. I've noticed a shift, maybe partly because I've been doing this work longer and now I'm like seeing some of the stuff more, but I've noticed a shift in the openness of vulnerability and the power that that presents itself when leaders do that. Like I think for the longest time, leaders were this put in a pedestal of, and we would look up and say, oh, how did they manage that? Forgetting they're human beings and they have all of the same emotional concerns that yeah. we have. And so I think that what you're suggesting is there, not only is the vulnerability, but there's also acknowledgement that we're all in this together. We're all in this human experiment together, which is suddenly very gratifying because it makes you feel like you're not alone in all of like the negative thoughts that you had, which for the longest time, no one ever shared. And I think that's probably yeah. what's different from an educational, someone telling someone information versus like what we tend to do, which is more collaborative conversation that goes just a little bit deeper than others. And yeah, and um, how to frame it. So what is the invitation? And this was something that I learned through experience in this short moment. How can you frame a question and an exercise or how can you invite someone to share? so that they would feel safe enough to do so, and then how to react. And I think it was in this moment that I learned also how to ask more maybe brave questions to leaders, because I realized, yes, there is something that they might want to share. And very rarely, we actually ask the leaders, so how are you really? And then give them the time to answer and to be vulnerable. And how often do we actually give them a compliment or appreciation? I think just to acknowledge that they are human beings with normal feelings and maybe even some imposter mm -hmm. uh, syndrome fears like we are. I think this can be a real game changer. 
when you're with a group, and let's say you're with an intact group, and there's the there's the leader in that. Sometimes I struggle when, like, a, let's say a CEO of an organization is a part of the team thing, having them actually feel like they are having an active role that is helpful rather than having to perform in a certain way. How do you try to facilitate? a plateau of normalcy between their employees and employers when you're facilitating your program? Yes. Thank you for asking that. I think it's um, such an important point and it starts ways before the workshop. And I recently um, had a situation where I failed um, following through my general process and I could see the difference. So what I usually do is I have interviews or conversations with every participant who would join a session beforehand to learn about the expectations, to build some rapport, to understand who they are. The one thing that I usually don't talk about is where are they in the hierarchy? I just don't want to know that. So that then once we are in the room, everyone is equal and I do everything to flatten the space because I think that's what they hire me for and where we have the best conversations and the best ideas where every idea is just an idea. And when I have these interviews then with the hippo, the highest paid person in the room beforehand, I would also get them on board and find out whether they're okay with that, kind of motivate them or incentivize them that they would rather play the role of the fly on the wall that it's their opportunity to just listen and to speak last. Also because I um, learned from previous experiences that very often the leaders have the impression that the entire room is waiting for them to share their ideas and their thoughts, but actually nobody is. Everyone just wishes that for once they would listen, but they're carrying all these expectations or the feeling of expectations on their shoulders. So when they're given the the opportunity to be a fly on the wall, very often they're actually happy to do so. So in this um, particular instance, a couple of weeks ago, I scheduled all the the pre-conversations and then with the leader, there were his two teammates in the call. And instead of saying, sorry guys, (laughs) I don't know why you're here. Maybe you can give us some privacy. I thought, ah, it's not so important and I'm making this up and it's okay if they're there. Bam, it backfired totally in the workshop where the leader was then not comfortable in the role, where suddenly there, were, there was this elephant where he had pretended he would be fine with being the fly on the wall, as in fact he wasn't. And I think he was very insecure about the sharing in the breakout rooms. It was all too touchy-feely. Whereas if I had him prepared in a one-on-one, I think um, the outcome would have been different. How do you balance being the expert and also meeting the goals? And what happens when those don't line up? There's a difference between being hired or coming into the space as an expert or as a facilitator. So when I'm hired purely as a facilitator, then I'm not the expert. I have permission to ask all the stupid questions and not to know anything. And I usually try to also avoid um, bringing in any of my expertise beyond group dynamics and group work. 
So for instance, when the group, when I suggest to focus and to prioritize and the group said, no, we don't need priorities and everything is important. I'm like, that's what you think now. <laughs> I invite you to pursue. That's, that's my job. And is as equally my job to be the one who is harsh on the timing and all these kind of roadblocks. And in order to match or to beforehand to really align on the goals, on the expected outcomes before the session. What I do with um, in these conversations before, I never ask them, what is your expected outcome? So what would you wish to achieve in the workshop? I always ask them, imagine the day after the workshop and you send an email to the host, the person who invited you, or to your boss and say, what a waste of time. What must have happened for you to consider the workshop a waste of your time? And then they will tell you everything that has gone wrong in the past of, oh, if we are discussing about this thing again, or if X is rambling about that, or if we're not deciding on any actions. So they give you basically an entire guidebook of what to avoid. And then it's easier to, to check, okay, what can I do to avoid that? Than to try to fulfill expectations that are very often inachievable. And also by asking them, so what would you wish to achieve? You're setting very high expectations and a lot of pressure on yourself. Maybe one of the most difficult things being a facilitator is I'm not responsible for the outcome. If, if the ideas and the solutions that they have developed are crap, that's not my responsibility. It's not my business. I can do the very best to get them to get out of their way and to become the best versions of themselves. But it's also their responsibility to go there with me. I think I gave myself a very hard time in the beginning to always feel responsible and also to be very judgmental. Oh, these ideas are not good enough. Well, maybe my questions and my invitations to produce more creative ideas were not good enough. But who am I to judge? And I don't have to work with the ideas at the end. Maybe to come back to the um, speaking with every participants beforehand. I often get the reflection, yeah, but this takes so much time and are you paid for this time? To me, I cannot understand how you can actually not do that because it saves me so much time. A, they will basically tell me what the key important things are that we have to cover in the workshop. So I don't have to come up with that. And second, how ignorant is it actually to assume that this one person who invites you to host the workshop knows what the real issue is? How can you base the, the entire design and the time of everyone joining on the assumption that one person knows they might not need the workshop in the first place? So I had training sessions where um, the participants were supposed to learn how to have better meetings. So obviously the initial statement is your meetings suck. You're a bad meeting host facilitator, right? So they were academics. So I think they had kind of some understanding that their meetings indeed suck. But still, I think that's a very harsh premise. So to get their buy-in... Then circles back to what we discussed before. How can we 
how can we allow them to actually be human and to bring in their full self? So what I did in this particular training was, okay, I heard that many of you, <laughs> I really heard that kind of 15 minutes before the training started, someone told me, yeah, I just want to warn you, there are a few people in here and they think it's a punishment for them. I'm like, and that's how I started. I said, Welcome, everyone. I just heard that some of you might think that this is a punishment and maybe you don't want to be here today. So, okay, so let's just split the group. Those who want to be here and are super excited stand here and those who actually don't want to be here come and stand here with me. Me by giving them permission to stand there with me because I don't want to be here either. (laughs) We're the 50-50 split. With this, they had a laugh and I said, okay, fair enough. Thank you for being honest. Give me three hours. And if after three hours you think it's a waste of your time, feel free to leave. And everyone came back after the break and everyone loved it. But at least it gave them a little bit of a feeling that, okay, they're allowed not to want that. The other point is, I think if in a normal workshop, when we are asking them to to collaborate and to come up with a solution or some creativity together, and they don't know their role in the space, This is very often where we are then confronted with all these naysayers. Yeah, we've tried that already. Yes, but it won't work. Anyway, I have told you for the last 20 years, but nobody ever listened to me. And I think by um, involving them beforehand and showing them that there is a clear role that they have and there's a reason why you invited them to participate because you want to listen to their voice, it totally changes the dynamic. Because then it's, again, they feel valued and they want to contribute positively because they also want to fulfill this positive role that you've given them. The gift of a freedom or a choice and option is an important thing. And most, most of the times, if you did that, you're not going to get suddenly everyone just walk away. That would be problematic. Yes, it would be problematic or an opportunity to actually really reflect. And why does everyone want to leave? I think giving them the opportunity to leave then might actually stimulate their fear of missing out. Oh, now I may leave. Oh, but what am I missing if I, so then it becomes kind of maybe a little bit more exciting to stay. Another thing that I realized is that very often we try to control or I try to control the space and to force everyone to pay attention to me and to have their full attention. So I'm competing with other sources of entertainment with their phones and maybe with another tab if it's, um, if it's an online session. And then instead of forbidding that, oh, please turn off their phones, please do this and that, please turn on your camera. I then realized maybe it's my responsibility to be entertaining enough or to provide enough value that I can actually win the competition against their phones. Forcing them to do something is doesn't work in the long run. And then when you, especially, especially on a video call, then you see how the reflection on their faces changes constantly where you see that they're opening different browser windows. Especially if they're wearing glasses, I found like you can yes. clearly see that they're like reading an e- or t- typing on an email. You're like, okay, this person's not, you might as well have your camera off. So then, yeah, just having different activities and um, inviting them to interact and to use their vocal cords more often, then they don't have, either they don't have time to open their phones or another tab, or indeed no interest. 
I think that there's something to facilitation over time for me where I've realized I should be talking less and listening more and giving more freedom for conversation. And I feel like that is a, was a hard challenge for me to feel like giving of time. How have you developed over time with giving of time? I can so much relate to that. When we are hired, especially coming in as an expert and sharing, we feel that we have to work hard and to speak a lot in order to to meet the value that they're paying us. Although I think in the most cases, they indeed actually pay us to hold the space. And then I wonder whether it's also a matter of ego, of our own ego, to we need to feel worthy of the pay. And therefore, we need to give them what we believe they need. And that's, of course, our wisdom. No, I think that um, especially in times like these, two years into a pandemic, a war breaking out in Europe, everyone has so much on their plate that they actually value the time of having a conversation, speaking themselves and making sense of things. And on top of that, then it obviously depends on the group that you're hosting. But for instance, when working with adults, I think, and especially in the, in the online space, when we have a session where human beings from around the globe are coming together around a specific topic at a very specific time, not giving everyone the opportunity to share their knowledge and forcing them to listen to only one person, I think is actually disrespectful towards the group and the opportunity that we could have. Because listening to one person, well, that's what I tell them. If you came here to listen to me, then maybe you want to listen to my podcast or to the YouTube channel. But don't come to my workshops. If two colleagues have a meaningful time in a workshop and could create a connection deeper than it was before, of course their collaboration will be easier next time. And of course they will work better together. I think our concept of what a workshop is for very often has to shift. And then it's our duty to convince the, our clients that, yes, it's important to do the work, but it's more than just a list of action items. We've talked a lot about various different topics, and I'm really enjoying this, like jumping around from point to point. I want to just try to bring it back a little bit and, and highlight yourself and the work that you do. Talk to us a little bit about uh, workshops work and maybe also maybe where some of that inspiration and we've maybe talked about the different points of inspiration as we've gone through this. But what inspired you to create that? Initially, my company name was iDays, Idea Days. So I thought, OK, it's about coming together to share ideas and to create something that is bigger than its parts. And this can only happen throughout an entire day and not just in a session of one hour. And I started to host idea parties, come with a problem and leave with the solution. So then I had this moment that I explained before that I suddenly called myself facilitator because more and more people asked me to either host workshops or to design workshops that I didn't even have to host. And I realized, oh, one can earn money with that. That's fantastic. So I introduced myself as a facilitator. Very often, the reply that I would get was, what? Are you a trainer, a consultant? 
what are you? And when I try to explain that I'm facilitating workshops, the replies that I or the responses weren't very positive. Oh, workshops. Are people still doing that? Um, the sitting in a circle and sharing feelings and singing Kumbaya. So in a mastermind that I attended, um, someone shared the idea, Miriam, why don't you start a podcast to educate about the professional facilitation and the value of workshops? The podcast um, title Workshops Work came up. And a year into that, I then changed my company name into Workshops Work. And the initial idea was, yes, how can we make workshops work? So me being the facilitator who makes workshops work or being the trainer who helps others to make their workshops work. And funny enough, it was, I think, last year that I was in a conversation with a friend and they followed my work that I'm now also doing with Never Done Before in the community building and the more meta level of workshops. And he understood the title Workshops Work suddenly as workshop work. So we are working on workshops. And I think that's um, indeed the work that I'm doing more nowadays is how can we explore the edges of our craft? What is there that we take for granted, but maybe don't have to? And how can we explore the what ifs? So we had recently a workshop was called Mixtape um, by Viren Taka, one of my podcast guests. He contributed a workshop called The Mixtape, where everyone beforehand contributed a song um, or some music that um, they related to emotionally. And then he was literally holding the space for an hour, being the DJ and playing our songs. And his invitation was in the beginning was a question and a tool for you how to use a mind map. And then we're basically all working silently on our own question guided through the mu by the music, but in total silence. Amazing experience in total silence without any interaction and still so trust building and so emotional for the participants that we all took away something for our own facilitation practice, but on a, on a different level than we would if we go to a facilitation training. Never Done Before started as a working title and started from an experience where I went to another facilitation conference and everyone told me this is going to be state of the art and inspiring and wonderful experience and you're going to leave with new tools and new methods for facil workshop facilitation. And came back and I'm like, been there, done that, and didn't really feel this inclusion, this warm vibe. And we're thinking of how can I actually, what would it take to host a conference where everyone was truly inspired and was really cutting edge and really something new? And then I realized, okay, I have all these podcast guests at hand. They're all highly creative people. And initially we thought, okay, let's invite them to Amsterdam to a conference that we call a festival. And the only condition is that they have to do something they've never done before. And then the pandemic hit and um, the conference couldn't take place on site. And then Oscar Trimboli, one of my podcast guests, he convinced me to try it online. And when I started to organize this festival, I didn't even have a Zoom license and I didn't know how to create a breakout room. That was in March, 2020. 
and now it's a global community of 250 people and we have never done before workshops almost every two weeks and are now working on a online community garden to explore what it takes to um to have a synchronous place to meet um serendipitously and co-create i love this concept because i think for a lot of people who do this kind of work you feel kind of isolated that there's not many people or at least you think maybe the bubble or the the niche is narrow and for me i've experienced this as you probably have through the podcast you realize like more and more people do similar work than us and it's it's for me it's been an incredibly exciting couple of years because i've had more conversations with more people that i had no idea existed in doing things that were very similar do doing something new and unique i i ran a workshop um with my colleague ryan and we would call it try something new because there's there's two parts to it. One was the trying of a new thing, but there's the other part, which is role modeling as an experienced facilitator, what it's like to do something new. Yes, this humility of doing something new and the invitation then to the participants to A, being more generous in just leaning in and trying it and accepting also that it might fail. And thereby it creates an entire different relationship between the contributor of a workshop and the participants. It becomes a, a shared experience suddenly. And it's a very vulnerable moment. It comes together with a lot of um, creation of safe space. We call it the brave space because it needs a lot of safety in order to be brave. I mean, you know how important the, the brave space is. Yeah, and the funny thing is, just to circle back to what you just said, um, and you might relate to that, when I started the podcast, I thought after 25 episodes, I'm done. So I was like, how am I ever going to find more than 20 people to talk about workshop facilitation? <laughs> and now I'm 100, I think I've recorded over 160 episodes by now. And the list becomes longer and longer because, yeah, there's facilitation is also broader than I've ever thought it would be. And I hope that other people, by listening to this podcast and listening to yours, start to create more connection opportunities. I reference this every single time, and I'm going to wrap up this episode now by referencing this, of connecting with Miriam, connecting with people like myself. This doesn't shouldn't necessarily be like the only touch point to this person. Really, this is an introduction to you listening to a person that maybe you didn't know. Maybe your connection through me, through this podcast is me. And now because of this podcast, you're connecting with Miriam. And I hope that you who are listening to this feel open and obligated to do that. And I would love to throw something in because it's a hell yes, um, encouraging everyone to connect. And you connected to me or the reason why you were on my podcast. I started, you liked the post of mine or you started following me and I followed you back or the other way around, you liked the post and I followed you. And you left me a voice message on Instagram. Just this little thing that costs you 10 seconds left such an impression. And I was like, oh, I want to learn more about this, Phil. So I checked out uh, who was following you and then I saw many shared connections. But then we scheduled an exploration call and it wasn't about being on each other's podcast. It was just being curious about the work we are doing. And I think as facilitators, and that would be my encouragement, we are generally curious people. We love connection. That's why we are doing the work we are doing. So be courageous, be adventurous 
and just send a message, ask for to connect and ask for a coffee call of 10 minutes. And sometimes this is all it takes to start something beautiful together. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Miriam, for joining me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, once again, please, please, please check out Miriam's uh, work at workshops.work. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playtime. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs>